Well, hello. Good to be with you this morning. I'm glad you guys are here. Let me give you a little rundown over what's going to happen over the next couple weeks. A little sneak peek of sorts. We'll finish up the book of Habakkuk today. We've been on a short series through the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. And then next week, kind of as a special thing, kind of a sad thing for me, but my buddy Matt Gordon, this is his last full week on staff, and Matt's going to share a message and open up the Bible for us next week. Then Pastor Dan's coming back. If you guys are here all the time, you know he's been working through that series on the Ten Commandments called Write It on Your Heart, and he'll finish that up. That ought to take us right about to Labor Day, start a, the school year, and we're going to do a series on discipleship through the fall. And so we're really, really excited about that. So I hope you'll join us for all those things. But today we are going to finish out the book of Habakkuk. So turn there, if you would, with me, or follow along in your app, or however you get there. If you've been with us through this series, I think it's been a great, challenging, practical little book to walk through. Maybe it's one we haven't spent a lot of time in. And in it, what you see is that the prophet Habakkuk undergoes this huge change. He goes through this process where he starts out, in chapter 1, he's questioning God. He's really kind of accusing God of just standing idly by while things are really, really bad all around him. And And he ends up having this great dialogue with the God of the universe. And he starts out kind of debating. He's trying to win an argument. He doesn't want God to send the Babylonians in at all. He doesn't want them to dispense justice. And as we heard over the last couple weeks, Habakkuk continually leaves out some really important parts in his argument. He leaves out the part where God's people are wicked and violent and deserve justice as well. He never seems to understand consequences for their actions. What Habakkuk is consumed with is making sure the Babylonians will receive justice because they're bad people, and they are bad people, and they do receive justice. But knowing what we know, walking through the book like this, really God's people should have known better. The Judeans in this scenario should know better. They've heard the prophets telling them, particularly Jeremiah at this time, urging them, pleading them, hey, repent. Turn away from false gods. Turn away from worshiping idols, and turn towards what? Faith. Faith in God. That's the theme that we've been looking at in Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous will live by his faith. And then last week, I liked, we saw a little bit of a sub-theme in Habakkuk 2 and verse 14. It was that God wins in the end. One day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God like the water covers the sea. So that's a a great sub-theme. One day we won't have to worry about who's getting what kind of justice and why God allows certain things to happen. Because one day, one glorious day, Jesus will come back. And that should really give us an incredible sense of perspective. I mentioned last week that my wife quoted some scripture to me because I'm a horrible lawbreaker on the interstate only, I hope. (laughs) She quoted James 2.10 to me. Whoever keeps the law and yet stumbles in one point, he's guilty of it all. And I said I didn't like that verse very much. But, But the reality is, I mean, I do like that verse. I just didn't want to have it quoted to me at that time. But, but here's where I am in my life. I need my wife to remind me of things like that. I need people to hold me accountable when I'm not living by faith, when I'm not doing the things that I know I'm supposed to do. I'm at that stage in my life where I really do desire accountability. I may not always like it. I got down this week. I had a really bad week at the start of the week because there was something horrible that was going on in the world around me. It really impacted me. It might have impacted you too. And I was mad and gloomy and sad because of the Cardinals' seven-game losing streak. And my wife, thankfully, came up and smacked me a little bit, and and she asked me this great question. She's asked me so many times before. Hey, in light of eternity, (laughs) does that really matter? In light of eternity, does a Cardinals seven-game losing streak really matter all that much? And because they scored 26 runs the next two games, it didn't matter that much. But uh, but I had had to stop and be challenged with that and really think, is that that big a deal? 
It's a great question for my wife, and it's a great sub-theme for this study. Habakkuk is worried about a lot of things. Specifically, will the Babylonians get theirs? And God drops in just a little preview of eternity. One day, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. But right now, we're still in the dark on many things, and Habakkuk certainly was. But something incredible happened to him during his quiet time. While he was reflecting on what God was trying to teach him, something clicked. God told Habakkuk to be silent, and Habakkuk was, and God showed up. Now, Habakkuk had to do his part here. He had to engage. He couldn't go watch a bunch of TV, just try to relax and clear his mind. That wouldn't have worked. He couldn't have gone and had a marathon Xbox session and killed a bunch of computer-generated zombies. That's not the same as being silent. He couldn't go check out Facebook for a couple hours, see what his friends were doing. He couldn't even go and have a great Bible study and a discussion. That wasn't what God asked him to do. He was simply silent. And sometimes that's hard. But in that time, it dawned on him that the woes that were pronounced on the wicked in chapter 2, they applied to him. It resonated with him that when the Judeans, he'd said they were more righteous than the Babylonians, that meant that he was prideful and he deserved judgment too. And over this time, somehow he began to realize that God's people had received and heard God's word. So they knew the law, and yet they consistently disobeyed. So very honestly, that made them less righteous than the Babylonians, who were their own law. And somehow this notion that God did have a plan, and it was a good plan, even though it didn't sound so good on paper, came to light for Habakkuk. And I want to give Habakkuk a little latitude here, because in our lives, a lot of times, God's plan is not so apparent. Isn't that true? God can and does use things that seem a little far-fetched to accomplish his plan. Habakkuk's going to reference this many times, and so we'll look at it in detail in a little bit. But when God was delivering his people from the Egyptians, he brought them to the brink of the Red Sea, and Pharaoh was in hot pursuit. And you know they had to run into the water and then turn around and go, whoops, (laughs) did we make a wrong turn somewhere? We were following this cloud, and the next thing you know, hey, is there a bridge somewhere around here? They had to be in that spot where they just couldn't see. We can see in hindsight. It's much easier. There they were, trapped between death by drowning or death by the Red Sea, and they they forgot that God was in control. But what happened was God was going to show mercy to them. He was going to display his power. He was going to save his people, and he was going to use the Red Sea to dispense justice to Pharaoh. That's hard to see without some hindsight. What about this one? God becoming man sending his son to wade into the mess that is humanity and rescue us. Did anybody see that coming? God's plan to provide salvation for his people when they'd placed their faith in him, that wasn't even clear to the prophets that God spoke to in the Old Testament. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 10 to 12, it says this, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, his audience, made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Well, it was revealed to them they were not serving themselves, but you, later audiences. In these things which they've been announced to you, through those who preach the Gospels, to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. See, God sending Jesus is clearer to us than it was to the prophets. They had no clue. The prophets didn't know the time. They didn't know the circumstances. Jesus is coming, they knew none of that. Who would have believed that God was going to save sinners by sending his son, 
to be rejected by sinners and crucified by sinners, to die in their place, in my place, and then conquer sin and death and establish a true kingdom that will have no end. See, God's ways are not our ways. That's why living by faith is so crucial. We need to have faith to trust that God's got it covered, even when we don't understand it, especially when we don't understand it. So let's jump into the text today, and this is what we've been looking forward to since the chapters began. Chapter 3 is the good stuff. Chapter 3 is where Habakkuk finally gets it, and he lives by faith. I was remembering this weekend, I don't know exactly why this came to me as I was studying, but I used to sell shoes for a living. Uh, I managed a sporting goods store, and I had a sales rep, and every time he came in, he was a Reebok rep. He's a nice guy. He'd tell the same joke. That's kind of a funny joke. And he'd talk about the guy who wore like a size nine and a half shoe, but he'd always, or he wore a size 11, but he'd always buy a nine and a half shoe. And, and you know, people would sell the shoe to him, not think too much of it. And finally, one day, somebody said, well, why, why do you buy the size nine and a half if you wear it 11? He goes, oh, man, he goes, I wear them all day. And then when I take them off, it feels so good. I think that's where Habakkuk is. Chapter three is where Habakkuk gets to take his shoes off. And, and I guess really more accurately, God just makes the shoes fit. He makes Habakkuk understand what he's been doing because he's God. He can do anything. You remember at the end of chapter 2, God tells Habakkuk, and really he's telling all of us here on earth, be silent. God is in control. And so Habakkuk does that, and he ends up at this incredible place. And the first thing we hear from Habakkuk in chapter 3 is a prayer. It's a prayer for God's mercy. It's in verses 1 and 2. It starts out, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiganoth. We need to stop there just for a second. Did any of you bring your Shiganoth with you to the service tonight? I forgot to bring mine. Ryan was going to bring his and play it, I think. Do, do we know what a Shiganoth is? No. And neither do the Bible translators. That's why it's still in there as a Shiganoth. The root of the Hebrew word indicates it may be from a verb that means to reel to and fro. And so I think the idea that we think is Habakkuk wrote this as a prayer and as a praise, but I think also as a song to God. In Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17, it says that God delights over us with singing. I love that verse. I think that's what Habakkuk is doing here. He's delighting over God with singing. And so maybe the Shiganoth is a musical instrument, or maybe it's a way to keep time or sing. I don't know. We just don't know. But it's in there, so I wanted to address it. Let's move on. In verse 2, he says, Lord, I've heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. And then he says this, in wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk's saying, hey, I've spent some time in silence, and so now I'm worrying less about my arguments for why the Babylonians are a bad choice. And now I'm really remembering who you are, God. And because I am, I'm truly just in awe of you. I remember your fame. I remember what you've done throughout history. And then it says this, revive your work. And what Habakkuk is saying is, do it again. <laughs> little kids are great at this. If you have little kids and you've ever done something that's fun or makes them laugh, and as soon as you stop, they go, do it again. And the great thing is for little kids, even if it's something like kind of scary and it like could have maybe hurt them and thankfully it didn't or whatever like that, it doesn't matter because they're still there. Do it again. It was just fun. I remember this so clearly. Right after Macy was born, our, our only little girl, our third child, when she was real young, her older brothers were like five and four at the time, and we went to the park. And she wanted to swing in one of those little baby swings, you know, the ones that look like kind of a molded plastic diaper that you got to slide your legs in. Well, it was great. She's a baby, you know, so I put her in there. Well, then Gavin and Carson wanted to get in the baby swings. Well, Gavin fit in the baby swing. 
he was five. Carson is built like me. And <laughs> it was tougher to get Carson the baby swing. But I buttered it up, you know, and I, sh- I shoved him in there, and I kind of wedged him in there with his thighs stuck in there. Well, you know, I was really watching Macy because she was a baby, you know. So I'd push her, but every now and again, I'd just reach over and shove the boys, you know, give them a little. Well, I did that, I guess, to Carson, and I pushed him too hard, and he flipped upside down in the little baby seat. And, like, I mean, he should have, you know, plummeted to his death, landed on his head, but his thighs were wedged in that thing. So he's just swinging upside down. And I'm looking around to make sure Christina hadn't seen what I've done, you know. And so I leave Macy for a second, and I go over, and I ride him, and I yank him out of there. And what's the first thing that comes out of his mouth? Do it again. <laughs> like, no, no, we're not doing that one again. <laughs> Habakkuk says that. He says, do it again, God. I remember who you are. I've read and I've heard all these great things about what you've done. Could you do that again, please? Because he recognizes now, judgment is coming. God is sending the Babylonians, but this is where we start to see the change in Habakkuk. Because he's no longer trying to talk God out of it. Instead, he says this, in wrath, it's coming, remember mercy. And I think what we see unfold in this next section is that Habakkuk is remembering all the stories and all the facts about how God is always at work. He's always saving his people. Before, Habakkuk was accusing him of doing nothing. God delivers his people, and in it we see both love and justice. We see compassion and consequences. And so Habakkuk's no longer working under that assumption that there aren't going to be consequences for the Judeans. He understands that. He's okay with it, but he wants to pray for mercy. And he's praying for it. He's asking for it. He's certainly not demanding it. Mercy's not really something that we can demand. Mercy from God is something that we seek for, and when we get it, but it's not a right. So Habakkuk asks for it. He prays for mercy. And then in verses 3 to 15, Habakkuk has this great section where he remembers acts of God's mercy throughout history. And he's just, he marvels at God's majesty. Habakkuk truly remembers that we're supposed to be in awe of God because he's awesome, because <laughs> he's worthy of our awe. And he focuses on two different areas here. In verses 3 to 7, he talks about God's appearance, just how God has showed up before in history. And then in verses 8 to 15, he discusses what happens when God shows up. He discusses his actions. First, let's look at God showing up in verses 3 to 7. It says, God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand, and there's the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tent cushions, or pardon me, the tents of cushion under distress, and the tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Before we jump into the text, there's another unusual word there. If you're reading in the NASB or the NIV, the word Selah is on the right-hand margin of your text. There's other translations may have it in the text itself. Selah is a little like Shiganoth. We're not 100% sure what it means. But here's the deal. The only other place it appears in the Bible is in the book of Psalms. But it shows up there 71 times. Well, here in Habakkuk chapter 3, he's writing a psalm. It's a song of praise. And so we see that word three different times in verse 3 and verse 9 and verse 13. And the verb in Hebrew where this word comes from means to exalt or to lift up. And so oftentimes we see it translated as being a pause of some kind where we lift up or elevate what we've just heard or read. 
And it may be just a break in the music or maybe a place to raise the volume. But I think for sure it's a spot to stop and reflect on what God has done or what he's doing. It's meant to be a little pause to remember who God is. So if you jump back to this text, Habakkuk is describing what God's appearance is like. And he goes back to Scripture to do it. In verses 3 and 4, he references Deuteronomy 33.2, where Moses explained that God's appearing was like a light shining from Seir and from Mount Paran. And I think it's neat, and I think it's great because it's intentional. It's an intentional reference. God had Moses send the spies into the promised land from an oasis which was at Kadesh Barnea, which was in Paran. Well, we know the story. The spies came back, most of them terrified, and they were stuck there. Paran is desert land. It's where God chose to have his people wander for 40 years because they lacked what? Faith. <laughs> Faith to trust God and take what he was giving to them. Now, I'm not going to stretch it to say that going into the promised land was like being saved. It wasn't salvation. I mean, Moses didn't even make it into the promised land. I'm pretty sure he made it to heaven. But, but we get that picture. There are blessings for obedience. There are consequences for disobedience. And Moses didn't get to go in. And in the Old Testament, the picture of fellowship with God, the picture of having a relationship with God came in rest. It came in going into that land of milk and honey that was the promised land. And here Habakkuk remembers God showed up there like light, and he wanted to give his people rest in the midst of a tough trial wandering in the desert. God had a plan, but God's people missed it. And Habakkuk's starting to see there's some themes here about the way God's worked in the past. And then there's this phenomenal truth from Habakkuk that closes verse 4 where he says God's radiance is like sunlight, but there's hiding of his power. You ever think about the sun? I take the sun for granted. I know I do. I mean, you know, if it, I, all I ever really do is complain about the sun. <laughs> I complain if it's out and it's too hot, or I complain if I wanted to go outside and it doesn't show up. And that's kind of what we do. But if I ever take just a few seconds to stop and think about the sun, do, do we realize it's a big ball of fire? It could consume the earth like that if God would choose to make it happen. And, and so when we get the warmth and the light from the sun, we don't get the full power of it. And he's saying that's a little like what God is. There's hiding of his power. He's a God of love. He's provided a way for us to be with us, but we don't get to see all of God here on earth because it would consume us like the sun and be too much for us. In Exodus chapter 33, if you go back and read that account, Moses wanted to see God's glory, and God says, no, you can only see the backside of my glory because all my glory is too much for you. He has to hide his power. In verse 5, we see more of it. We see more of God's might. Because Habakkuk references plague and pestilence. We saw that in the Old Testament. Famously in the plagues in Egypt in Exodus chapter 7 to 11. And he talks about pestilence. It probably refers to Deuteronomy 32 as the disease that just swept the land. But what Habakkuk is showing is, hey, I'm remembering these things about God. And he's powerful. He's not just the man upstairs. He's not just the big guy. We get that idea sometimes of God and it's so small. God's just a little old man who's up in heaven. You know, sometimes he dozes off and he forgets to answer our prayers. Habakkuk's remembering God, and he's remembering that he's all-loving, but he's also all-powerful. He goes on in verse 6 to describe how mighty he is, and I think he's remembering this account in Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 to 19, where God shows up. He appears on Mount Sinai. Reads, so it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. 
And Moses brought the people out of camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. That's not a little old man. (laughs) That's not your grandpa fishing in his pocket and giving you a piece of hard candy. That's... God. That's a mighty and powerful God. And God shows up and Habakkuk says, hey, your ways are everlasting. They're going to go on forever. Do that again. Show up like that. I need you. He rounds out this thought in verse 7. And this one hits me hard because I love to be outside. I love to be in God's creation. And I like to camp. But I'm a tent camper. I don't even have a pop-up camper. We camp under fabric. And, and there, here's the reality of that. Sometimes that limits when you can camp. <laughs> if the sun comes out and it's a little too hot, yeah, we're not going to camp. If the sun doesn't come out and there's thunderstorms, we're too cold, too windy, there's a lot of things that wouldn't put us outside. Well, here, Habakkuk is remembering, wow, God, you shake the mountains. You can split the water. He mentions Midian here. That was on the east bank of the Red Sea. That was where God showed up big and parted the waters. And Habakkuk is saying, God, you're so powerful you can literally shake the earth and part the water, well, then there's, there's no dwelling that would be so fortified that would be safe at a time like this. And how horrible would it be, you know, if an earthquake or a tidal wave came and you were living in a tent? That would be scary. So Habakkuk's engaged in this process. He's been silent before God. Now he's prayed for mercy, and he's remembering these things God has been doing. He's been showing up through history. And Habakkuk recalls that. And in this next section, he's going to realize that when God shows up, he does stuff. He does powerful stuff. And so Habakkuk really digs into God's actions here. In verses 8 to 12, it says this. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. He says, in indignation you marched through the earth, and in anger you trampled the nations. We don't have time to go step by step through those accounts, but Habakkuk keeps remembering when God shows up and delivered his people by parting water. It was like I mentioned earlier. There, there were 400 years of slavery at the hand of the Egyptians, and then God taps Moses to lead his people into freedom. Truly, God led him with the fire and the cloud, but Moses was on the ground, and he was in charge. And so he leads them, and they're being pursued by Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. It was all in Exodus 14. If you read it, it's great. And God leads them through the wilderness, and suddenly they're in that spot. They're hemmed in between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. And Moses says this. God gives them these great couple lines in Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. And and just imagine, if you can, their angst. 400 years of slavery, now they think they're free, and they're stuck between death and death. Moses says this, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today. That's a great line. And then I love this one. For the Egyptians, whom you've seen today, they're chasing you, you'll never see them again forever. (laughs) Moses knows what God's going to do. 
See, God performed a miracle here for the salvation of his people and for the justice of the Egyptians. He parted the sea. I mean, that's not just a cool story. That actually happened. God did that. And then in the text it says, he sent a stiff breeze through so the ground would be dry to walk on. God's a God of detail. They didn't even have to slog through in the mud. And when all the people made it through, men, women, children, everybody but the Egyptians, God used the Red Sea to deliver justice. And when they get through to the other side, remember what happened? Moses' sister Miriam led a song. They rejoiced and they worshiped. That's a good thing to remember here. The point of being saved, the point of being rescued, is worship of the God who does the saving. We can't save ourselves. When we're miraculously saved by God, we should worship. It's what they did in Exodus. It's what Habakkuk is doing here in chapter 3. It's what we should do today. Every day that we remember that God's in control and he has a plan and it's for our good and we're supposed to live by faith in him. Habakkuk might be recalling another time where God parted the waters. And this one, if you remember, is where the Israelites are crossing the Jordan River. It's in Joshua chapter 3. Once again, God's going to perform a huge miracle. But this time he does something different. He asks to see their faith beforehand. If you read that whole passage, you know the Jordan River's at flood stage at that time. And so Joshua's supposed to lead the Israelites, and they're supposed to take the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God across the swollen river. But this time, there'd be no parting of the river beforehand. There'd be no stiff breeze to dry out the land. In this account, the priests who were carrying the Ark had to step in and get their feet wet. I mean, and this was no pond. It was no still body of water. It was a raging, flooding river. But God's people were obedient, and they stepped in. And what do you know? God showed up. See, in chapters 1 and 2, it seems like Habakkuk can hardly remember any of these stories. He's got that Roger Clemens-itis where he misremembers some things. But here now, all of a sudden, after that time in silence, he recalls all these great examples of God showing both wrath and mercy in the past. And Habakkuk's saying, do that again. He's picturing God in all his love, in all his salvation, in all his justice, and the image he comes up with is a warrior God. It's really the opposite of what we come up with a lot of time, isn't it? I probably shouldn't speak for you. But, but I think sometimes that's what we do. We think God's just this kind, old, benevolent God. It's kind of like a genie in a bottle God. He's just sitting up there waiting for us to ask stuff so he can grant our requests. But that's not the image that Habakkuk gets. He gets warrior God on a horse with bows and arrows and shields fighting so fiercely that mountains will shake. That's the lengths that God will go to as he fights for his people. Verse 11 mentions God's power again, refers to Joshua chapter 10. That's where God caused the sun to stand still on Joshua's long day. Go back and read that account. It's so cool. The warrior God does two miracles on that day. I always get caught up in thinking about how incredible it is that he stopped time. I mean, that's pretty impressive if you think about it. But he does another miracle before that. It's in verse 11 of chapter 10. It says, as they, and this is the enemy, this is the bad kings and their group of folks, as they fled from before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than from those from the sons of Israel killed with the sword. That's a warrior God right there. Can you imagine these bad kings are fleeing? Oh, good, we got away from the swords of Israel. Hey, where'd that rock come from? Ah! 
I love that Capital One Venture Card commercial where they're playing Dodge Rock. I think that's fun. This didn't go so well for them. They died because the warrior God threw rocks from heaven at them. This is what Habakkuk is putting together here. It's this prayer of praise. It's this song that describes how God has been working in the past. It's Habakkuk realizing he's been wrong when he said God hasn't been doing anything. Now he remembers God as a mighty warrior. And you go back to the text in verses 13 to 15. Here's where Habakkuk puts it all together. It's where he realizes over the course of history, God has continually showed up to save his people. And so Habakkuk gives a summary of the gospel message 600 years before Jesus shows up in verse 13. He says, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. There's one of those selahs there, and that's a particularly gruesome spot to pause and remember how powerful God is, but that's what Habakkuk's pointing to. God is a mighty warrior. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. And you showed up. You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. We begin to see that Habakkuk really understands what God has been up to. And it's not like God's angry at the mountains and he's wiping them out. It's not like he's indiscriminately angry at people. What he's doing is wiping out the wicked and preserving his people. That's God's purpose here, to crush wickedness but make a way of deliverance for his people. And there's something really unusual in the text here from what I can tell because in verse 13 it says that salvation is for God's people, but then also it says for the anointed. And that's a term that's never used in the Old Testament to reference Israel or God's people. So that has to be a reference to Jesus coming as the Messiah. So Habakkuk now gets, hey, we're not going to get totally wiped out. God will preserve at least a remnant of his people so that the messianic line will be upheld. Then the text says God struck the head of the house of evil and sliced him open. We've already seen God can take out evil leaders, evil kings. I'm thinking this probably gives Habakkuk a lot of peace knowing that God can handle the Babylonians. And Habakkuk finishes this thought by indicating that God can confuse and scatter the enemy in such a way where they end up attacking themselves. We see that in Scripture. And that's got to be a bad thing. When you're gloating in victory and the next thing you know, your gloating turns into blood and gore at your own hands, that's God showing himself to be powerful and in control. And then I think Habakkuk references that miracle at the Red Sea one last time. And the picture he gets, the mental picture he gets, is as if God himself got on a horse and trampled the sea over the Egyptians. See, the takeaway for Habakkuk in this, the takeaway for us today, is that if God did all those incredible things for his people in the past, he'll do them in Habakkuk's day. And he'll do them in our day. When Habakkuk paused to recall God's great mercy, his mighty power, his sovereign majesty, then he's got to realize, hey, no matter how wicked and violent the Babylonians are, God could use them first and then still judge them. In this final section, we see Habakkuk applying God's word. He says, okay, if that's who God is, if those are the things that he's done, well, then based on that and what he already said in verses 3 to 15, how should I act? And verse 16 explains it. It describes Habakkuk's new outlook, the, the end result of this process, based on that dialogue with God and these things he's remembered. This is what he says in verse 16 
I heard from God in the silence and all these examples, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Before, Habakkuk stood and argued with God. Now he can't stand at all. His stomach churns, his knees are weak, and it's no longer because he's afraid of the Babylonians. It's because he's in awe of God. He understands God's had a plan all along. Habakkuk says, you know, God, I've heard from you personally. (laughs) We talked. And then I was silent, and then I remembered all of these accounts of how you've dealt with sin and consequences and how you've fought for your people, how you've come to save, and and I'm just freaked out. (laughs) I'm just overcome. But because of this process you've brought me through, I can rest. I can sit and wait patiently to see what you do, God. If you remember in the first two chapters, whenever God floated this plan, Habakkuk was like, no, 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 no way. That's not going to work. Now Habakkuk says, okay, God, I'm terrified to the point where I feel like my bones are wasting away, but I'm not going to live in that place. I'm going to worship. I'm going to sing. I'm going to respond in faith. And we know this because of what we read next. And this has truly got to be one of the greatest statements of faith in the whole Bible. Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk says in verse 19, The Lord God is my strength. He's made my feet like hind's feet. He makes me walk on my high places. Habakkuk knows the Babylonians are coming, and he knows this is going to look bad, but he's still going to worship God. I love that notion in verse 18 that he'll exult. He'll rejoice. It uses that praise language, the language of song. God rejoices over us with singing, Habakkuk's going to rejoice, even in his trials. Why would he rejoice? For the great day that he's having? No. (laughs) In Habakkuk's day, there was no super Walmart around. If you lived in a farming context and you have no fruit, no olives, no crops, no animals, then you have nothing, and you're going to starve to death. Habakkuk ends up in that same place that Job was in Job 13, 15. Do you remember when we referenced that? Though he slay me, even if he kills me, I'll hope in him. Do we apply that well? That's a serious question I'm asking because I know that I often don't. I find it so easy to praise God when things are going good, when we need health or recovery and we pray for it and God gives it, when we want a good job and we pray for it and God gives it, when we're wanting children and we pray for it and we get pregnant. It's easy to praise God then. What do we do when the bills come in the mail and there's no money? What do we do in trials? How do we respond when they arrive? That's a truth teller right there. And the reality is sometimes we feel like we're doing the best we can when we just smile and say, well, I'm just weathering the storm. I'm just doing as good as I can. I mean, (laughs) that's great. That sounds nice. But that's not what God asks us to do. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verses 16 to 18, Apostle Paul says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. 
in everything, give thanks. Why? That's God's will for us. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's a verse that I love when there's fruit on the vine, cattle in the stalls, but that's not a verse that I love when the cupboards are bare. When we get to that spot, when we're in the trials, what can we learn from Habakkuk? Can we remember to praise God for who he is, not for what he gives us? Can we rejoice over the fact that God has had a plan from the beginning of time? Could I do that? If God would never show up and do something for me that I could observe in my life, he never did another thing for me that I could see, would I sit in silence and remember that I've had so many blessings up to this point in time in my life that I could sing his praises forever? Habakkuk says, doesn't matter if all my stuff's gone. I'm going to sing to God. I'll still rejoice. Why would he do that? It's because he's been in this incredible process. He's had this dialogue with God, and he's drawn closer to God, and now he responds with faith. And it's faith so strong that he can make this statement which defies logic, which takes faith and not reason. Habakkuk says he'll rejoice in whom? The God of his salvation. See, here's the deal. I have a relationship with God. It's by grace through faith in his son, Jesus. When I am silent, when I stop and meditate on that, I cry. You guys know me. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm humbled. And I'm just blown away by the fact that God would want to have a relationship with me. I'm so unworthy. For the rest of my days on this planet, if God did nothing that I could see, Would I still remember that he sent his son to die in my place so that I could have a relationship with him forever? And that's worth rejoicing about? That's worth singing about? I wish I could actually sing. Habakkuk closes with these thoughts in verse 19, that God will be his strength. And I think that's so important and so critical because we mess that one up so often. God is where we're supposed to get our strength the strength to make it through each day. And what we end up with is taking strength from something else so we have just getting by strength. I can just make it through today strength instead of rejoicing in the Lord's strength. See, if we try to get our energy from our successes or our relationships on earth or our money or our titles or, or any other idol that we pursue, at some point in time, that thing is going to fail. It, it will let us down. And then that source of our strength is gone. We're toast. And we'll grow weary and we'll lose heart. And Habakkuk says here that God has made his feet like deer feet or like mountain goat feet, like hind's feet, so that he can bound through terrain, so he can walk fearlessly in high places. Are there any rock climbers here today? Anybody like to sit on the couch and watch rock climbing on TV? I'm not a rock climber. I'm afraid of heights, truth be told. I, I like to work with my hands. I like working outside. I think I'd like roofing if it was on the ground. I think that'd be fun. I remember one time as I was reading through this passage this week, going with a bunch of kids in Young Life to Colorado, and we were going to go rappelling. And so we hike up to this rappelling spot, and I'm freaked out. I mean, I'm just scared to death. I'm trying to hold it together, you know, because I was the leader of all these kids. But secretly, I'm looking for a kid who's maybe as scared as I was, so I can go, hey, if you're scared, I'll just walk you back down. You, know? you probably need somebody to guide you back down the mountain. You know? But I couldn't find a kid like that, so there I was on top of this mountain. And, and while we're there, God did the coolest thing. He showed up. And we're sitting on one side of this canyon we're going to rappel down. And on the other side, this 200-foot, 
literally vertical drop, there's a mountain goat. And he's just walking along. <laughs> there was one branch sticking out I saw from the mountain. It had some leaves on it. He was going to go get it. He was just like, you know. <laughs> and he's, it was incredible. It was one of the coolest things I'd ever seen, seriously. There wasn't a human alive who could have taken a step on this. And he just prances across. I never, I mean, he, he never stumbled. I never even saw any little pebbles come down. God gave him those kind of feet. It's one of the coolest things I'd ever seen. This is what Habakkuk is talking about. What God wants to do is give us the ability in a trial, like the one Habakkuk is describing, where the Babylonians might make it so bad that he'd starve to death, that Habakkuk would still be able to rejoice. He'll be able to, to tap dance through life like that mountain goat on that mountain in Colorado. Habakkuk's saying, God makes my feet like the feet of the mountain goat. Where when the pitfalls of this life, the trials and the injusticeness and the wickedness and all those things, they start to pile up. Well, if you have hind's feet, you don't have to slog through those. You can prance over them. God gives you the ability to rise above those things. Why? Because of faith. With faith, we can worship in times like that. Habakkuk closes the text. He indicates this is a song of praise. It's for the choir director. It can be led by stringed instruments, like a shiganoth, for example. And that's it. That's the book of Habakkuk. The prophet works through a process with his God where he starts out fearful, but he ends up faithful. He starts out accusing and questioning God, but he ends up remembering God's mercy and majesty and praising him for his plan of salvation. And here's the deal. We're supposed to apply this in our lives today. What if those last few verses of Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19 were written today? It'd say something like this, I think. Though the social security system is depleted and the stock market crashes, though my insurance company goes belly up, my IRA account disappears. Though I lose my job or my health or my business fails, I will still rejoice because of the Lord, because of who He is, because of what He's done in sending His Son Christ for me. What would our response be? That's the question. I think the message of Habakkuk, this key theme of having faith, is so important. And I think it can be really comforting for us because... Seriously, if we look around, this is where we live. It's a wicked, violent, unjust time. Sometimes it seems like things are piling up. It's good when we really question what's going on around us to look back at Habakkuk and remember what God went through to save his people and that he's sovereign and he's good and he can use anything he desires to accomplish his purpose for us. Will we live by faith in this world? Will it show up in our lives? especially when we have trials. We have trials in our workplace. We have trials in our marriage. If we have trials in our parenting, if we have trials in this local church, will we be miserable in those trials? Will we sit and accuse God of not showing up? Or will we do just a little better and, and just hang on and say we're just barely getting by and not have the kind of abundance in our lives that God sent his son Jesus so that we can have? Or will we do the opposite? Will we respond by rejoicing and by walking in faith with the strength that God gives us? The righteous will live by his faith. If you're doubting the power of that faith, let me close with this. It's what will overcome this fallen world. 
Faith is what gives us the strength of God. It gives us those hinds feet to easily soar over obstacles. It's what gives us the ability and the perspective to rejoice in the midst of trials. I'll pray to close, but let me, let me read 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, because I think this is what Habakkuk is pointing to, even without totally being able to understand that Jesus was coming. 1 John 5 says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whoever, pardon me, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. It's our faith. The righteous will live abundantly by faith. And God wins in the end. Let me pray. Father God, serious, serious challenge. God, you you have met me in the book of Habakkuk, and I see myself far too often like Habakkuk in chapters 1 and 2, where I'm just questioning you, God, and I'm accusing you, God, and I need so desperately to sit in silence and remember who you are. Remember your great plan of salvation. Remember that you give us the strength and the feet to be able to rejoice in trials. God, help us to apply this little book. God, help us to apply it in our lives in a way where you get the glory. God, I just think about the witness we can have for you if we're able to rejoice in trials. And people around us would ask, how? How on earth can you do that? You say, because of my God. Lord, we love you. We give this day to you. We ask all those things in Jesus' name. Amen.